Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. TheGromit.com has unique items across a variety of categories. Super unique items. Yes, and every weekday they introduce a new product. So go to The Gromit, and there's something for everyone, especially those people who are hard to buy for. Super duper cool gifts like those giant wooden lawn dice that I'm buying you for Christmas. Oh, why'd you have to tell me? I'm a spoiler like that. You are. This holiday season, give your gifts some thought. Visit thegromit.com slash crime writers and you will receive $10 off your first $50 purchase. We might have gotten that uh, code wrong last week. We got the URL wrong last well, week? I'll take the blame. I was going to say you're throwing me under the bus. No, there's enough blame to go around in the world, <laughs> Rebecca. That's the Gromit, T-H-E-G-R-O-M-M-E-T dot com slash crime writers. You'll receive $10 off your first $50 purchase. The Gromit dot com slash crime writers. writers. Crime writers. Crime writers. That's what I said. What else is going on? We have a new podcast. Well, we don't have a new podcast. No, we do. This is the latest podcast from the Partners in Crime Media Family Empire. It's like we had, we had like adopted a new podcast. Yeah, this is actually a great new podcast, and it's something completely different from what we've been doing. This is called the Disappearance Podcast, and it's about a man who receives a mysterious box from a classmate who disappeared 20 years ago. Now, this is sort of like in your wheelhouse. It's old-time radio, right? Yeah, if you like the black tapes or the message or Archive 81, you're going to really like the disappearance. It's moody, it's mysterious, it's mind-bending, and it's from the great creative mind of John Herman. And you can get it now at iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Take a listen, leave a review, tell your friends. The Disappearance Podcast, the latest adoptee into our family of our burgeoning media empire, Partners Partners in in Crime Crime Media. Media. Those guys at the end do it a lot better than we do. They sure do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and this week, a veritable cornucopia of crime audio from right here and from down under. We're going to be catching up on the In the Dark and Breakdown podcasts and chatting about a new show Toby recommended, Phoebe's Fall. Joining me to get all that done is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Make it stop, Rebecca. Make what stop? Just this whole week. Just make it stop. <laughs> and also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, 
and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. Also with us is our very favorite library trustee and all-around swell guy, noir novelist and linguistic genius, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Bonsoir. (laughs) See what I mean? (laughs) Linguistic genius. Speaking of linguistic geniuses, Toby, I understand that there was something that you neglected to mention last week. Uh, During our conversation about Amanda Knox and the prosecutor in that case, you mentioned that that same guy appeared in the book Monster of Florence, right? Correct. So you listened to that book on audiobook, right? Right. And so did you, Kevin, right? Yeah. All right, so I'm just going to play a tiny sample of that audiobook for you so that you can have a chance to mention the thing that I know you neglected to mention. Here it goes. The second landmark, Spetsy went on, was another villa called I Colazzi, with a facade said to be designed by Michelangelo. And the third landmark? Spetsy's smile widened. The most interesting of all is just outside your door. <laughs> There's nothing outside our door but an olive grove. Precisely. And in that grove, one of the most horrific murders in Italian history took place. A double homicide committed by our very own Jack the Ripper. As a writer of murder mysteries, I was more intrigued than dismayed. I named him, Spetsy said. I christened him Il Mostro di Firenze, the monster of Florence. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um... I'm just going to let you go, Toby. What do you have to say about that? I, you know, that was actually a fairly like restrained part of his like doing the Italian accent. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times he'd like raise his voice a little bit, uh, slightly higher pitch. And uh, <laughs> oh, the picnicking friends, uh, they thought they was the picnicking friends. And um, which if you've heard the thing, there's like this whole, these guys. I was just picnicking. Yeah, they're just yeah. they're just these friends who go out picnicking. That like that was like these people's uh, alibi. Anyway, you know, I don't want to harsh on the guy because clearly his job is not doing Italian accents. But <laughs> well, I would argue is, that in this, it case, is a little uh, distracting. It is. It's the it's the actor Dennis Butzakaris, I believe is how his name is pronounced. He's a regular. We've seen him on Law and Order many mm-hmm. times, many episodes of Law and Order. And um, as our friend Sarah D. Bunting, I believe, coined him on the Twitters, uh, the Chef Boyardee of audiobook. <laughs> Uh, readers, what do you think of that accent, Kevin? I- I'm going to say I didn't think there could be anyone who would make the Mickey Rooney performance in Breakfast at Tiffany's sound less racist, less culturally sensitive, less culturally sensitive. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe the guy who does uh, Mario and Luigi <laughs> could have could have done that. He do- sounds like Father Guido Sarducci. <laughs> yeah. It's me, I'm Mario. I-, I do think a good audiobook voice is important. I'm actually. Uh, listening to a series right now and the reader changed from one book to another in the series oh yeah yeah it was uh, so jarring has anyone yeah. else had that experience yeah, yeah I, with uh hillary mantel's uh wolf hall and then uh bring up the bodies was a different reader who i didn't like as much yeah i had that same thing with uh, stephen king's dark tower where stephen king read some of the earlier books but then i was like oh it's not stephen king <laughs> you know i'm listening i'm listening to one about the nixon years and what's really distracting is this guy just mispronounces all these names. <laughs> like, so it's like Dean Atchison. He calls Dean Atchison. Mm. And there's a whole bunch of other ones. By the time he and was it, done, it was too late to fix it. <laughs> it was just, it was, it's, anyway. I would love for Toby to do an audiobook. That would be awesome. Some business got in touch with me asking me if I wanted to do my own audiobook through their 
production thing. You would take your uh, one of your books that you've published and you would read it. Okay. And, and then for a small several hundred dollar fee, they would offer it for sale. Toby, do you own the audio rights to your book or does your publisher? Ah, uh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I think because my my rights got switched from one publisher to the other. So I don't know right now. I originally owned the audio rights but now they may be with my publisher. Yeah. My publisher is pretty cool. I imagine they would be okay with it. But. This is a question we get a lot, and, I, and a lot of people don't understand about author books and the contracts and the subsequent rights that go along with it. And when you get the contract, of course, the thing you're looking at is, what is my royalty going to be on the first 5,000 hardcover copies or the first 100,000 paperbacks and you know the, the, the <laughs> metrics that then it goes up from 8% to 10% to 12%. But there's all these other subsequent rights, which include like foreign language and movie rights and book club rights. And there's just like this whole list of things. We don't own any of our rights for anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the most part, unless you negotiate that. Right. The rights go to the publisher and you kind of assume that because the publisher owns those rights, they're going to work to sell the book in one of those formats right. so that they can make money on that. But we've been with the same publisher. Of course, it's changed hands. We started with Penguin, and now we're yeah. with Random House, Penguin Random House. Our first book contract, we just gave up the audiobook rights. We signed it. and think about it because audiobooks were not a thing then like they are now no, with no, apps. No, audiobooks are a thing. No, I knew e-books. they were a thing. They were a thing that you used to get from your library on tapes or CDs. Mm-hmm. Now they are a thing you can get on your iPhone, which did not exist when we signed our That's first true. book contract. So... All the listeners who always ask us why aren't our books on audio, it's because we don't have the rights to them. And we've tried to get them back and we haven't been able to. So Yeah. So the answer to all of our fans who are like, oh, we would love to get your books as audio books. Nope. And w- <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> and you all have these microphones and this equipment and it came from your brain. Why don't you just do X, Y, and Z as we can't? Because that we contractually, those rights actually belong to... Penguin Random House. Right. If you would like to hear any of our books made into audiobooks, contact Penguin Random House and let them know. Let them know. Maybe they'll do something about it. Who knows? That's right. Laura's with us, too, with same publisher. So, Laura, Mm -hmm. do you have strong feelings about the narrator's voices when you listen to an audiobook? Well, I do. You know, we talked this summer when we did our summer book club pick, and I couldn't stand the narrator's voice for the younger version of Lou. Mm -hmm. It depends. I mean, certain books, if you have the right narrator, you get sucked right in, and other ones, the voice can just completely turn you off. Right now, we are this is a not necessarily an adult book, but we're listening to one of the Harry Potter books on audio. They have a fantastic narrator who does all the voices and everything. And that makes it it's almost like a movie. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. I, I listened to all those Vera Cleves books the last few months and the narrators for those do all the voices. And you would think that would be distracting, but it's great. By the way, I also listened to I Am Pilgrim. <laughs> Which oh. is the longest audiobook in history you recommended. <laughs> and that guy does all of the voices. And initially it's a little like, whoa, he's a woman now. But you get used to it and it's really fun. So that was a good pick, Laura. Thank you very much for recommending it. It was a good time. You're welcome. I haven't you know, finished it yet. What's weird is so when when the vaults got made into an audiobook, they sent me six audition tapes. Right. With okay. different readers. So I got to choose which one I wanted. It's funny because, you know, when you're writing, you have this kind of voice in your head about the way things are supposed to sound. So all the guys who are trying to do like the voices, I was like, my God, you know, there's just no way. The guy I picked was a guy who was doing it more sort of 
deadpan and just kind of reading it, you know, and doing like subtle voices and stuff. And I thought that was the best. And everybody else was like, no, no, no. But that was a, that was a guy I picked. No surprise there, Toby. <laughs> yeah, it's all about the words. It is. And Toby uh, liked the vanilla the most. You know, he liked the deadpan delivery the most. <laughs> Speaking of which, Toby, yes. uh, earlier today I sent you a list of some of the items that our listeners purchased using the Amazon link at CrimeWritersOn.com. As our longtime listeners know, one of our favorite things to do is to listen to you read some of the very interestingly rewarded uh, item titles of those items. So do you want to just pick out a few that maybe struck your fancy this week and deliver them as only you can? Oh, boy. So we'll just start with uh, Kalili Premium Natural Argan Oil Hair Mask. A hair mask? Ounces. What's a hair mask? A hair mask. It's I'm a, not you done. You mean a hat? He's not done. <laughs> oh, shit. I'm sorry. Uh, how am I supposed to work? All right. Repairs damaged hair, hydrates, softens, strengthens, shines, and nourishes. So, yeah, the question is what is a hair mask? I don't know. It's something that someone does a lot more grooming than any of the four of us uses, right? Yeah. Is that something you'd wear to a bank robbery? (laughs) What what else you got, Toby? Let's see. This is a little weird. Prince of Peace, 100% natural ginger candy, three pack. Three by four dot four ounces, three times 125 grams. Hmm. I do love me some ginger candy. Is, mm-hmm. is but that, isn't the Prince of Peace, isn't that Jesus? Yeah, is, it, <laughs> is it Jesus ginger candy? It's like communion yeah. candy I or something. Know. Anyway, Whiskas, Choice Cuts, Chef's Favorite Variety Pack, Wet Cat Food, three ounces, pack of 24. Shout out to that the cat wasn't people. <laughs> it wasn't me. Yeah, it wasn't you. It wasn't me. No, no. Bone Vital Natural Massage Gel, one half gallon bottle. <laughs> wow, massage gel. I did not see that coming. I didn't think we had those kinds of listeners. <laughs> Apparently, we wow. Do. That's, that's going to be a big weekend. I bet it's a massage that's therapist. A big weekend. I bet it's a massage therapist, <laughs> and that is like a um, a vocational tool. I'm that- sure someone's taking a tax to write off on it that. Says, sh- it says family size. <laughs> oh my! Oh, oh. God. Go ahead, Toby. (laughs) Diatomaceous, earth food grade 10 pounds. I don't understand. Okay, it's a, it's first of all, I actually know how to pronounce that. It's a diatomaceous. Yes, that's what I said. (laughs) But but what is it? It's it's earth food grade. Well, diatomaceous, I know you put it in, it can be in fish filters. It's also something that kills earwigs. There's some diatomaceous like bug killer. There must be some, what, supplement? What category was that under? Home and garden. Oh, Maybe it's the bug It's one. home and garden and it's food. It's earth food. Oh, all right. That's oh, all it's we need good to for the earth. All right. Well, thanks very much for reading those items, Toby. As only you can. Well done. As only you can. Well ne- done, my next friend. Next time we expect you to do all the voices. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think it's time to get started with the show. What do you guys think? We're going to start with a feature that we debuted a few weeks ago, something that we like to call, and we need to add some echo to it. You want to say it, Kevin? True. True. Crime update. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that Jean Benet Ramsey special on CBS and about the fact that Burke Ramsey, who the investigators strongly implied committed the murder, planned to sue the network. Laura, I understand there has been a development on that front. Do you want to fill us in? There has. Um, he wasn't just talking a big story. He actually sued. <laughs> so, you know, because a lot of times people threaten to sue and, and then, you, you know, you don't hear anything else. Who are you talking um, about, Burke, I never heard anything about <laughs> I, I'm not. 
I'm not going to mention names. So Burke filed a $150 million lawsuit against not the show, but the forensic pathologist in the show, Werner Spitz. It was Spitz that was the one that suggested that Burke killed John Binet by bludgeoning her with the flashlight. And you all remember the disturbing reenactment that they had where they actually brought in the little kid to be Burke and show that this was possible. Mm. And that the subsequent binding of the hands and the strangulation and the duct taping was like a staged cover-up. So the lawsuit was filed in Michigan. It was filed in Michigan because the comments that this guy Spitz made were made to a Detroit station, and both Spitz and Burke Ramsey are currently Michigan residents. Basically, Burke's lawyers are alleging that Spitz is kind of like looking for glamour. He's kind of a publicity seeker. Um, He's also worked on the autopsies of JFK and Martin Luther King Jr., and he has once again interjected himself into a high-profile case. He's also, do we know this, that he testified in the defense in the O.J. Simpson case? Yeah, I think they mentioned that. As well as Phil Spector and Casey Anthony. So he's been in a lot of high profile cases. So the lawsuit has been filed. Whether or not Burke gets $150 million remains to be seen. But it has happened. What that tells me is that they really took the transcript of, of the program and went line by line with what everybody said. Because A, who has the deepest pockets? It's the network. So you, you would assume that... If you're going to file a suit, you would sue CBS or you would somehow make them a a co-defendant. But it sounds like they went through and looked at what everybody said and just said, oh, well, uh, Henry Lee, he said this, but the standard isn't, you know, such. And Not for nothing, but that's just what that defamation lawyer said he could do if he wanted to have standing in a lawsuit. Yeah, and probably picked the thing that they thought was the most damaging and the thing that they could prevail on. All right. Well, that's a really good true crime update, Laura. Thanks for filling us in. I'm sure we will keep track of that. Uh, Toby, will. I've got something for you as well as for our listeners. Okay. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned last week is that you would love for us to talk about a podcast that perhaps had a little bit more relevant social issues going on than the ones that we have been discussing on the show. So I actually have some homework for next week for you and our listeners. Are you ready? I'm ready. There is a new podcast on the block. It's called Offshore. It is by Honolulu Civil Beat and PRX, and it tells true stories from Hawaii, the complex racial and identity connections between two prominent killings that happened decades apart. The episodes go beyond the popular images of the islands to tell nuanced tales of nationhood. Now, I'll be honest, I've listened to just a couple of minutes of the podcast, but I have heard tremendous things about it. We're going to touch on it next week. So I'd like you to catch up, Toby and Laura and Kevin, on Offshore. I will send you all links and we will post a link on our website. So listeners, listen to Offshore. We're going to talk about it a little bit next week. Sounds great. All right. right. see Dog the Bounty Hunter make an appearance. (laughs) He is my favorite Hawaiian crime person. (laughs) Of course he is. Do we we can make a drinking game every time someone does a Bookum Dano inappropriate (laughs) reference, you have to... You mean among this panel, not among the talented journalist actually making the podcast. Yeah, I I'm sure he's one not. In, though, someplace? I'm going to slip in a Greg Brady <laughs> Taboo. Alice throws her hip out doing the hula. All right. So let's discuss the podcast that Toby recommended that we listened to last week, Phoebe's Fall. This is a true crime podcast by The Age in Melbourne, Australia. Toby, do you want to give us a quick synopsis of what this podcast is about? Sure. It's about the death in December of 2010 of Phoebe Hansjuk, who was a 24-year-old who lived in Melbourne. What happened to her is that she went 12 stories down 
which is a long ways. She went down this garbage chute all this way and lived, but then she ended up in a trash compactor, which almost severed her foot. And then she bled to death on the floor in the bottom of this trash area at the bottom of this luxury high rise apartment building where she lived with her boyfriend, who's this guy, Anthony Hample, who is from sort of a wealthy Melbourne family who seems you know, he was a producer. He had connections to a lot of people. He seems like sort of a man about town. And in the uh, toxicology report, she was found to have blood alcohol reading of 0.16% and high levels of prescription drugs. And she was kind of, you know, the people talk about her as though she had addiction issues. So it was ruled officially a suicide and this podcast is sort of reinvestigating that case. Actually, Toby, I believe that the final coroner's finding was that it was an accident. And I believe their term was death by misadventure, I think is what the correct term misadventure. is. Misadventure? Yeah. I was just yeah. reading the website to get caught Which, up. by the way, I would recommend. The online presence for this podcast is really good. They yeah, have a cast good. of characters laid out. It's the kind of thing I wish more podcasts would do when they're telling a story. Literally like a storyboard of the people, who they are, how they're connected. It's it's really, really good. So I'd recommend going to theage.com. You can see the Phoebe's Fall podcast is linked right from their homepage. So, Laura, what do you think is interesting about this case and the way they're telling the story in the podcast? Well, you know, overall, you, like when I first started listening to this, I was thinking, boy, the production isn't quite as polished as some of the other ones that we've listened to. But the story in this case, I mean, when I went online and looked at the picture, what they were recreating, basically, whether it was possible for somebody to go through a garbage chute and saw how small this garbage chute was and was I really got hung up on that. I was like, oh, my God, what a way to go. I mean, it's just horrific. But then I think that you have kind of a cast of characters that's really makes up a good true crime story. I mean, you've got this young, beautiful girl, but she's troubled. You've got the older man who's sort of from, you know, more of an upper crust background, who's kind of like you said, the man about town. You've got his sister, who's an interesting character, who has these very fancy, expensive clothes, but then she gets busted selling cocaine, and then they let her off because it's an embarrassment to the family, which was kind of bizarre. So I think you've got a lot of interesting characters, but I think it's just sort of trying to wrap your head around how or why somebody went into a garbage chute. I mean, that's such a unusual way to either murder somebody or commit suicide or accidentally, I don't know how in the world you would accidentally stuff yourself down a garbage chute. So for me, I think it was just sort of the details of this story really kept me hooked and wanting to hear more about it. Now, Kevin, you said when you started listening, you hadn't caught up yet. Yeah, I'm only through three episodes. And you said at the beginning, like, oh, she clearly just threw herself down there or whatever. And then I was like, no, you need to keep listening. Now that you've heard a little bit more and now that you've looked online at the story, what are your thoughts? Is this case interesting to you? This podcast isn't doing it for me yet. And I will say with the caveat, I haven't heard episodes four or five, Mm -hmm. which is this week. So if it's a big change, then forgive me. But with the caveat that this is how far I've gotten, there's a lot of sort of weird stuff and things that are unusual around it. But if the starting premise is the official determination is that she put herself in the chute and fell or tried to do something because she was drunken or suicidal or whatever, 
I, I haven't seen yet the thing that tells me that it's something more nefarious. But, you know, we do start with this pretty fleshed out personality profile of Phoebe, which is, I think, where you are, yeah. where they talk about her, you know, mental illness. They get into pretty graphic detail about her obsessions with men, her history of very intense behavior, what appears to be somewhat bipolar affect in terms of her very, very deep intense interest in sports and jumping across rooftops and not just doing kickboxing and karate, but becoming a black belt in a very short period of time. Her obsession with this idea of a fall as a uh, way to purify yourself. Right. And it is an interesting sort of place to start because it is where it takes you. It does go a little bit in a bit of a turn. Toby, I'd love your thoughts on what makes this case interesting? I mean, you're the one who recommended the show to us, and I'm sure you had caught up by the time that you did. Why don't you let's sell Kevin on why he should keep listening to this podcast? Go ahead. Well, it seems to me to be a case that seems more like what you would read in fiction, in that the method in which she died is unusual, and it's hard to picture like a circumstance in which that would happen. And then, as Laura was saying, you have this interesting group of people that were kind of part of her life that, I guess, sort of amplify her problems in some ways. And also, I think, kind of probably introduce her to, I mean, this guy, Ant, her boyfriend, her older boyfriend, he seems super connected. It seems like he would be sort of a glamorous person to be hanging out with all the time. So I just, I guess I found that whole mix of elements it, it did seem like something that you would see in fiction. And then you add to it that her grandfather is a former detective. Yes. Uh-huh. I, I think one of the most interesting parts of the podcast. And so he's the one who's, you know, I guess there are other people who are probably dissatisfied, but he's the one who really takes the reins and says, you know, this is, you know, this is not misadventure. She didn't accidentally squeeze herself into this shoot. So I, I guess that's kind of what got me. I think there's also some of the audio I think was interesting. They do have quite a bit of audio that the mother took surreptitiously the first time she saw the boyfriend. What do you what do you happened. think about that? We actually got a question on Twitter about that from a listener about the inclusion of that secretly recorded audio. Now, I know it was partially redacted or we weren't able to hear the whole thing because... I'm sorry, I don't know the exact terms, but basically the judge, the convening authority or the judges in the case basically say, like, you can't play this part, but this part is admissible. So we are able to hear part of this recording the mom made in secret when she went to visit and after her daughter died and his parents were there and his mother, I believe, is a judge, right? Yep. yep. And the so it's, it's a very interesting cast of characters, as Toby said, because you have this connected sort of party guy who's like a promoter who like his sister who sells cocaine. Mm-hmm. And it's like very slick, glossy apartment that's described whose mother is a judge. And it very much feels like characters in a novel. It really does. And the mother then records this secret audio of this conversation, which sounds I've only heard a few minutes of it, but it sounds pretty disingenuous. But somebody did tweet us about the ethics of including that audio in this podcast. And we do hear the journalists talk about it a few times. They talk about decisions they're making, whether or not to say things, whether or not to play things, whether or not to hear things. Toby, what do you think about the inclusion of that audio? And then I'd love to hear Laura's take on the, on the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the the ethical decisions that they had to make, you know, it's a tough one, I think. He doesn't really say anything that to my ears seemed incriminating. Again, it's, I don't know if I would have felt comfortable doing that with a podcast that I was doing, but, you know, for whatever reason, and maybe I just, you know, it was the frame of mind I was in when I was listening to it. 
it didn't seem to me as exploitive as maybe some other audio we've heard in the past. What do you think, Laura? Well, it's interesting. You know, I don't know what their laws are regarding things like that. I mean, it's kind of one of those, well, you've got this material, do you run with it? And then, you know, we had Ant's lawyer sending this very strongly worded letter that they read in one of the episodes. So on one hand, I'm thinking, boy, they sent this very strongly worded letter. This guy's clearly not excited to be a part of this podcast. Um, He's not going to participate. And now you're using audio of him. So I'm wondering if he's going to go after these journalists for including it. What did you think about the recreation of Phoebe getting into the garbage chute that the grandfather reenacted at the apartment with I believe it was Phoebe's, you know, karate training partner who, you know, was able to demonstrate ostensibly that it would have been impossible to go feet first down the chute. What did you think of that part of the podcast? You know, I watched the video. There was there was a couple of videos. There was one video where they had the girl and she was like hooked onto a harness, which in a way sort of was like, oh, God. I mean, it really creeped me out. They were on the 12th about- floor, Laura, when they yeah. shot that video. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, if that thing fails, she's going down just like Phoebe. So I'm watching this and I'm like, there's no way that this this woman is going to fit in there. You know, and you can't recreate the exact size of somebody. And, you know, if I guess if you really worked at it, it was interesting. Also, then when they showed they had kind of like a recreated shoot where it wasn't on the 12th floor where they had the unconscious person or the person who was pretending to be unconscious. And that looked like it was a little bit easier for the person to get in. I mean, that may have just been me. But did anyone else watch both of those videos? I, I did. It was clear. Wait, you haven't finished listening to the podcast, but you watched the videos. Well, I heard I heard about the. <laughs> I heard Laura sent an email that you watched the videos. I wanted to yeah. take a look at that because I did have questions, too. And I'll admit, because they say it's a meter off the ground, and I, I don't know how tall that is. Is an American? I'm, I can't. 40 inches. 40. I don't. It, it could be six feet. I don't know. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, so it's about, you know, waist, chest high is where you would grab the chute. Do you remember the, the yeah. week on Twitter we had last week? <laughs> Do you want to be an ugly American again, Kevin? I'm sorry. I don't know the metric system, which is why I went to help myself. <laughs> Instead of asking for help, I just went and checked out the videos and what they showed was that it is not impossible it's difficult to do it themselves it also sort of leaves the question that one could probably put themselves into the shoot if they wanted to but how does one do that without leaving fingerprints right and the idea if they said that there were no fingerprints found there it's this is a public shoot it's got to be like as filthy as a toilet Mm -hmm. you know because everybody is is dragging their stuff and that's where they throw their garbage out it's got to have a million sets of prints on it if it has no prints on it then somebody wiped it right but no i mean i saw it and i thought well okay no it, it could be done the question is why now can you stuff somebody in if they're unconscious yeah you definitely could So some of the other interesting evidence we've heard in this podcast, of course, we heard about that very mysterious final text message that Phoebe allegedly sent to her mother and some other people. We heard about this whole thing with that message being sent on a borrowed iPhone, which was allegedly out for repairs. Of course, that recreation. Of course, we heard from all these friends. We heard all of this really interesting conversation about mental health, which I'd like to get into at length if we revisit this podcast. I think there are some issues Mm -hmm. there. Worth exploring. But my question for you right now, I mean, we're only a couple of episodes into this podcast. We're not like, you know, neck deep into it. 
Will you keep listening? And do you think there could be a satisfying end to this story? I'd love to hear general thoughts about Phoebe's fall at this point. Yeah, I think I will keep listening just because, like I said, it's not the most polished podcast. There's not a lot of great audio background like in some of the others we listen to. But this story and the characters really have drawn me in. I fear, though, that we're not going to have a satisfying conclusion in this case. I fear we're going to leave it with this sort of ambiguous, well, she could have killed herself or somebody could have stuffed her down the garbage chute, but we will never know. I don't know. I mean, I just have a really hard time believing that somebody would choose that way to kill themselves. So it seems to me if she did do it herself, it was like she was like doing something on a dare and then accidentally, oops, down she went. Yeah. I mean, the thing that occurs to me, you heard a lot of people say like she wouldn't kill herself this way. There is a big commitment in killing yourself that way. And then to try to get out once you've realized it doesn't work. There's also blood in the apartment. There was blood on the keyboard of her computer. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other evidence, and I, I think yeah. they're going to be getting into a little bit more as the podcast progresses. Toby, what are your thoughts about Phoebe's Fall? Will you keep listening? I'd love to hear, just hear your thoughts. I will keep listening to it. I know that they're sort of like Sarah Koenig was doing, they're reporting as this goes along. So I think they probably don't know if there's going to be a satisfying ending yet. Did you think it was so interesting, that- Toby, how they talked about like... Nobody else ever dies this way, except for, of course, those two cases in Baltimore in the same building, which was super weird, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, that's definitely weird. The thing that it most reminded me of, to be honest with you, as far as like if you're going with the misadventure idea, is that there was this strange case in Los Angeles. Oh, the girl in the water uh, tower. Yeah. So the, this girl who was acting as though she was being chased, there's footage of her in an elevator, and then she ended up basically drowning in this yeah. water tower on top of this hotel. And a they, locked they water tower, her. by the way. Was it locked? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of conspiracy weirdness around that case. They actually mentioned that case in the in Tannis. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, actually like, something that when I was taking Chinese, my teacher told me is widely regarded as a very serious proof of ghosts existing. And it's like a big viral video in China. It's a super interesting case. Rebecca, we do not the, need Chinese people tweeting we should at post, us now. We should post <laughs> Just shut it down. Kevin, post a link to that story on our website. Okay. It's something I think our listeners should see. I guess but I, yeah, it was super weird. Because it seemed to me when I when I took a look at it, it was that I guess they found that she'd been on a lot of drugs and it seemed as though she was paranoid and was trying to escape from something. It seemed to me that what she had done was crawl into this water tower to try to escape, in quotes, and then found that she couldn't get out again. How did they discover her body, Toby? Remember that detail? I, I believe Ooh. it was because the water was getting fetid because her, you know, her Ho- body was in there. That's right. Hotel patrons Ugh. were uh, turning Ugh. on their showers. and But uh, this was like weeks later, too. Yeah, it was I mean, it was, it's, it's a, a very, it's a very yeah. yeah, there's nothing good about that story. But anyway, that's the only thing I could really, you know, if it's misadventure, it's seemed like it would have to be something along that line where she became disoriented and was trying to do something to get away from something real or imagined. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Kevin? Well, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I'm only three episodes in. Will I keep listening? Yes, I, I want to be able to participate in our own podcast. It might be nice if you'd like, we didn't have you talk for a few <laughs> minutes. Just saying. People would tweet us, Kevin, just sit this one out. All the negative feedback we get after all. Actually, no, that's not true. It's not all about you. A lot of it's about me. Laura and Toby, you guys are saints for putting up with us we've heard that a lot Um, this week (laughs) yeah no well i you know no one wants me anymore because i want to have a cocktail with that awful reporter (laughs) (laughs) so with phoebe's fall i i will say one thing and i don't need to get to the current episode to be able to definitively state this the production value the overuse of sound effects yeah is really disturbing and and i actually object to it 
it's okay if you're doing a news piece and you're at the church and the church bell rings, you're just running your microphone and you get what we call natural sound or wild sound. It's the sound of the atmosphere of the room. You're picking up sounds and ambient noise that way. That's journalistic ethics is to use sounds that you actually captured while reporting. To start off and you've got Foley sound effects of, of feet walking and doors opening, closing and a church bell. There are elements where it's, it's supposed to be illustrating what news reports are, and they're faking these news reports and intersplicing them so that it sounds more dramatic. For me, I, w- I could do without that. It seems a little fake. It seems like, you know, like you're trying to cover up some flaws, just like you do when you have gray hair and you want to cover that up. <laughs> and you can do that very well with Madison Reed. Ooh, new sponsor. Madison Reed is Ooh. a salon-quality hair color with an authentic personal touch and they're so passionate about you loving your color with their expert colorist supporting you every step of the way now madison reed is made from ingredients that you can feel good about they are the first ever six free permanent hair color six free yeah it doesn't have it's free from ammonia Ooh. I like that. Parabens. Yep. Resicoronal. Want me to read those for you? PPD. If I can't (laughs) read, why would this be in your hair? PPD. Doesn't have PPD. What does PPD stand for? I don't know. Uh, Fetilophates. (laughs) You sound like Toby right now. And gluten. Gluten? And gluten. It doesn't have that in... Well, my hair is gluten intolerant, so that's probably good. That's good. So it has all (laughs) these things. It's crafted in Italy, just outside of Milan. Nice. And their luxurious hair color is infused with nutrient-rich carotene, argan oil, and ginseng root extract to protect and pamper your hair like never before. Now with 100% gray coverage and the support of Madison Reed expert colorists who will guide you every step of the way you can color with total confidence. Experience beautiful, healthy looking hair color with over 40 shades to choose from. Their online color quiz guarantees 100% shade match. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Try it, love it, Satisfaction and happiness guaranteed. That's the beauty of Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with code writers. That's the promo code is writers. Promo promo code writers. Now you're sure that's actually the promo code. Yeah. (laughs) This is 40 shades of no gray. Oh, snap. <laughs> nice. Wait, let me get my pen. Let me tell you something about All this. Right, 40 shades. <laughs> 40 shades of no gray. gray. Promo code writer. Writers with a W. <laughs> let me tell you something. I have a confession to make. Yeah. Last time I went into my hair person, who I love, she's the best. Her name's yeah. Tina. She said one thing to me. If you color your hair at home, use ammonia-free color. So the fact that this is ammonia-free is very exciting to me. That's good. Madison-read.com. Yeah. And the promo code is... Writers. Yeah, there could be some lady named Madison Reed living in Wisconsin who has her own website. Yeah, and she doesn't want any of your shit. Okay, she doesn't. Isn't want that the you. one you can go to to have affairs? No, that's, that's Ashley, Ashley Madison. Madison. <laughs> These guys do not want to be associated with Ashley Madison. Madison-Reed.com promo code Writers. writers. Okay. Now we're going to spend a few minutes catching up on two true crime podcasts we've been listening to for a little while now. You want me to say it? Uh, what you do want you want me to say the, you know, the thing? What thing? Go ahead, say it. True crime Podca- update. No, it's true crime podcast update. No, it is. It's been true crime update. 
<laughs> I already did true crime updates. Guys, back me up. It's true crime update, right? <laughs> you got to insert the podcast because yeah. that's two different things. Yeah, insert Yeah, my it. contract only has one true oh, crime update uh, episode. Okay, okay. guys. <laughs> okay, I'll call an audible here. Omaha! Um, 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 true true crime, crime podcast, podcast. <laughs> update. I love the cracking voice. You sound like you're 13 years old. All right. Now we're going to spend a few minutes talking about Breakdown. This is the podcast from Bill Rankin of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, the show is focused on the trial of Justin Ross Harris, who's accused of murder for the very tragic hot car death of his young son, Cooper. Kevin, this is now, we've just heard in this podcast, the second jury selection process that has taken place in this case. Right. The first jury selection, of course, was nullified by the fact that the judge at the last minute decided to change the venue of the case to get a more impartial jury, moved to a different county in Georgia. But again, there were, I think at least from our perspective, and definitely Bill Rankin's, some shenanigans going on in jury selection. Can you fill us in on some you, of the highlights of the jury selection? You're not saying it's rigged, are you? Not saying it's rigged. Okay. I'm just saying there were some interesting moments. Well, it is interesting. You know, this is basically season 2A of Breakdown because, as you recall, Bill basically laid out this whole case. And then, as they were going to trial, they moved the venue, which. In no small part because of the podcast. Well, the media coverage and because of the perception that Justin Ross Harris could not get a fair trial in that county. So when you listen to these new episodes that are are dealing with voir dire, there are a couple of very weird jurors. I mean, you know, you have... The seer. Yes. And Laura, you've, you've been there and you know, like, you get different people who come on and it's like, they're normal people, but they just could never in a million years find this person innocent. And I just know he did something wrong. And... I wouldn't even leave a lizard in a hot car. Yeah, you know, there's people that just aren't going, one way or the other, are very easy to strike with cause. But the guy who, like, said that he has, what is it, like, ESP or God talks to him? Help me out. This was so... Or what did he say? He, he, oh, he could God. see the... He, he, had, he could see into them or something, or he could tell if they were telling the truth by yeah. looking at them. And he could and, sort of see things. And Bill Rankin made a, you know, has made a couple of funny offhand remarks. And, and the juror who's a seer, he should have seen that coming. You know, he, does, he hasn't yeah. let that go. Yeah, that was an interesting choice. It, it strikes me as odd. I mean, I think that the judge is very cognizant of trying to get, you know, a really strong jury, a jury that would stand up to review upon an appeal, which I think is the reason why she granted the change of venue in the first place. So to go through this trouble and then half-ass pick a jury is not something that she would want to do. Apparently, it sounds like with the exception of that guy, the rest of the jury is solid, although the experts tend to believe it leans towards the prosecution. Now, Laura, there was one interesting moment that actually made me think of you. In one of the episodes, they talked about one of the jurors that actually the prosecution wanted to strike. This was a juror who had belonged to a Facebook group about the Justin Ross Harris case on which she had posted strenuously worded statements about him being guilty like two years ago. The prosecution wanted her out. Someone from the the prosecutor. No, the prosecution wanted her out. Someone from the prosecutorial team had joined the Facebook group. Okay, I remember that part. Brought out these statements that she had made, and then the defense was actually defending her right to be there, saying she's not a liar. 
And Bill Rankin sort of commented on that being surprising. But you have actually, as a defense investigator, done this, right? You've gone onto social media to look at what potential jurors have said and done on social media, right? Yeah, well, there's definitely restrictions around that. So once the jury is chosen, you can't look, uh, you know, and I can't remember the specifics, but there's certain time frames where once there's a jury that's actually working on a case, you can't look at anything for 30 days. But ahead of time, I mean, I've done a lot. I mean, Facebook and social media is just a treasure trove of information in cases now. It's almost kind of like a rabbit hole, though, because there's so much information out there. We also have here in New Hampshire a very right-leaning newspaper where the comments uh, section in that newspaper, when there is a high-profile case or something that you were working on that was in the newspaper, when I was working on it, I was always tracking the news coverage because when it came time to pick a jury, if somebody had gone on this newspaper's website and said something very derogatory about the case or something where they had clearly already made an opinion, that's somebody that you would you would raise that as an issue. But I was very surprised, like Bill Rankin, that they wanted this person on the jury. But I guess in this case, it's going to be so hard. Um, it's just such a difficult case that no matter who you get, I mean, who knows? Now, Toby, one of the episodes focused on the opening arguments in this case. I would love your thoughts on that, on how the prosecution's opening sounded to you and then how the defense's opening sounded to you both as somebody who has talked about court cases a lot on this podcast and also just as a citizen who has served on juries. They were a lot more emotional, I think, than the, any one that I've been on. I mean, the, the, the prosecutor, his sheer kind of disgust just comes through so strongly. I was trying to picture being in the, in the jury box and, and seeing something like that and, and what would be my response to that. The defense attorney... I found his, I guess, pleading type voice and sort of showily emotional, you know, and maybe it's just not unusual. It's just not something I've experienced before, but I was a little bit taken aback by just how much they were willing to show their emotions on their sleeves, especially in the opening arguments. It seemed like maybe that was more a closing argument type emotion. But again, my sample size for these things is, is pretty small. Now, Toby, I'm going to correct you on one thing. They're not opening arguments. They're opening statements, as Bill Rankin made a point to instruct us on. I actually thought these were two of the strongest opening statements I've heard on tape. I mean, we have read and listened to, between Kevin and I, dozens probably of opening uh-huh. statements, you know, for the, in full. Transcripts and, and, yeah, yeah. And the idea, and also watched on, you know, televised trials and so forth. And I thought, and Bill Rankin made the point to talk about how the defense attorney had some time to prepare because of the 15-hour delay and they, you know, we adjourned because of problems. And so the he had time to prepare and really rebut in his opening statement. And, you know, the use of the expert to talk about why it's so important was so effective I really thought the prosecution statement was strong. And then I was really blown away by the defense opening statement and his preparation of the foundation of what the defense was going to be. Laura, what did you think of these two opening statements? Well, you know, it's with the defense. That's the one that struck me the most. I think about when you have a case like this, this is a horrible, horrible case. And when you get a case like this at face value, if you're a defense attorney or defense investigator, you're like, oh, shit, like this, you know, there's no good facts. There's a whole bunch of horrible facts. So you're kind of limited in terms of, I think, what your actual defense argument is going to be. So I think it was a really good strategic decision on their part to just 
put all the bad stuff out there right up front because that stuff they're not going to be able to contest. So they're putting it right out there that, yeah, he did all this horrible stuff. You're going to hear all this. He was responsible. They they said he was responsible, but not criminal. Exactly. So that's their defense. So they're putting it right out there because I think honestly, from a strategy standpoint, that's probably the only chance they have in this case. They're not going to be able to rebut all this awful sexting stuff the prostitute who you know talked about his vanilla sex um you know (laughs) who had clearly read 50 shades of gray (laughs) so i think from a strategy standpoint i think that was really good because they're putting it right out there right up front all the awful stuff that he did from their perspective that you know this was an accident this wasn't something he intended to do that was interesting and i love how we have then the attorneys that are sort of the courtroom watchers that then sound in on all of this yeah the experts are fantastic are they not in this podcast? Mm-hmm. I love um, them. Now, Kevin, one of the most interesting parts of the opening statement episode was how the defense attorney used the opening statement to show the jury that the cops lied. Yeah, it's interesting because, again, this is an opening s- statement. And I guess it's different in every state and how much latitude they had. The way that the lawyers are able to bring in evidence, evidence that yeah. has not already been introduced mm-hmm. formally and to play videotapes and things like That's that. That's not how New Hampshire works, no. No. I they mean, tell you what's going to happen, they don't, they don't show well, it yeah, to I you. Mean, right. And you know the process, lawyers. Somebody has to come in and swear to that this is a videotape and, what, and where they got it mm-hmm. and everything like that instead of just sort of playing it. And I agree with Bill Rankin's analysis that the prosecution opening statement was really, really strong. And it's got you thinking one thing. And then the defense comes in and parries it with an equally or even stronger rebuttal. You know, it's like, okay, game on, because both sides are coming out with an A game. What I like about Breakdown is two things. One, you can do court TV or whatever it's called now, and you can watch gavel-to-gavel coverage and see a long-form version of a trial from your living room. And unlike the things that you will see on Dateline NBC or even your local radio news report, you won't be able to hear these extended sound bites with the extra analysis. It's not just a one-hour news recap of what happened this week at the trial. It's much more in-depth and, and very thoughtful and selective. It's not a bunch of boom-boom-boom sound bites. Also, what's really compelling about this case is that it's not a whodunit, like a lot of these other podcasts. Right. You know, you basically are stipulating the fact that Justin Ross Harris was driving the car. He left the baby in the back seat. And what it comes down to is his intent. And who and knows? The process. He's either going to be found guilty or innocent because he intended or he didn't intend to leave the baby in the back seat. It's either an intentional act or it's an accident. And the only way you can determine that is by getting into somebody's head or finding other evidence that it was a planned act, perhaps. You can show the fact that it happens so often that they run PSAs about this. Right. See, I don't think that's what this podcast is about at all. I think mm-hmm. what this podcast is about is the process around a case like this. Because as Bill mm-hmm. Rankin has pointed out in earlier episodes, there are other people to whom this has happened who have been treated completely differently mm-hmm. in different states, in different jurisdictions. They were different sexes. They were different ages and different situations. And I think the point of this podcast and the reason he's gone so far is to bring in all of these experts, like these really, really strong experts. The thing I love about Breakdown, which is a little different than you, is that... This, I think, is the best podcast to listen to if you really want to get inside a courtroom and know how trials work and know how the justice system works. He humanizes the prosecutor. The prosecutor is not a bad guy out to get, you know, the good guy. 
you know, I think Bill Rankin has laid it out that it was probably an accident, but he's not making the prosecutor a villain. He's showing how they do their job and showing in the defense what they are doing is not trying to get in the head of what Justin Ross Harris was thinking. They're trying to show the cops made a case against this guy using really shady methods. They yeah. lied about the the fact that the police report was not allowed in as evidence in the case, yeah. even though the cop on the stand said something different than was in the report. That's what Bill Rankin is doing here. And that's what I think is so interesting. Unfortunately, all the good enterprise reporting about that and the, and the police statements and what they said before, that was all sort of in, we'll call that season 2A. Right. And we're in season 2. We had this long break and it's almost it's forgotten. It's worth going back and listening to. That, you know, uh, what, the, what the original news story were and the salacious nature of the chat rooms that he was in have other explanations and are not nearly as damning. But Rebecca, I think you and I are actually very, I think we're closer in agreement than we are in disagreement on this point. Right. I just don't think that's what the podcast is about. Laura, what do you think? And I just want to ask you about one other detail, Laura, that um, Mm -hmm. Bill Rankin, you know, was like, whoa, what just happened? And, you know, his experts had the same. Whoa, what just happened? Exactly. And it is is his delivery. I have to say, it's really grown on me. Like, I used to think it was like, okay, well, he doesn't sound like a podcaster, but now I love it. He's kind of entertaining if you listen to him. I like his kind of manner of speaking. Me too. He's not dumb. He's a smart no. guy. He just kind of sounds like Mr. Rogers. He sounds like Jim Neighbors. He's earnest. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like when uh, when yeah. the one juror was attacking the media and he was like, "Objection! That is yeah, a, that I is like a that spurless part. claim with no facts to back Hold it." Hold on, crime writers. <laughs> I'm still working very hard down here. <laughs> but I want to talk about you know another moment that I think illustrates what it is Bill Rankin's trying to do here. That. Um, the witness who was on the stand that, you know, the defense objected to what they said. The prosecutor asked the question about, you know, Justin Ross's Harris's affect. And, you know, the defense attorney objected, saying, you know, this isn't an expert. And then the prosecution's argument to the judge was, this person's giving a lay opinion, which is valid because of X, Y, Z, and the judge let it in. I mean, do you think that that's insightful in terms of how this process is working and how this guy could potentially be convicted that has nothing to do with what his intentions actually were or weren't? Yeah, no, I was really surprised by that because that's something that is, you know, flagged when you're in a case. When somebody gets up and gives an opinion, they usually have to be qualified to have some sort of expertise in that area to give that opinion. And I think this was like, well, is this guy acting appropriately for somebody whose child just died? And Mm. they're like, no, it seemed very odd to me. He wasn't acting right. And I was like, no, that's highly prejudicial. I mean, yes, it's a witness, but that's their opinion. That's not actually fact. It's like a witness who's on his way to like have lunch at the Mexican restaurant in the strip mall. You have to ask the question, well, how many people have you, how many parents have you seen witness the death of their child? Yeah. And do you know what shock is? A lot of this comes down to, again, like with Amanda Knox, it's about my interpretation of their affect. Right. And that somehow feeds into whether or not they are guilty or they are not guilty. I was really surprised that they let that in because I'm thinking the attorneys that I worked with would have been objecting over that. And that's something they would make a note of as an appeal issue. I agree with you. And and that police report. Holy fucking shit. A police report is evidence in a trial. Yeah. You want to talk I about an appealable understand. error. Yeah. Now, this, of course, was the cop who was on the stand who contradicted what he had put in his police report. Now, I'm guessing he what happened. impeach him with his own right. record. I'm, I'm guessing what happened was that they had not included the police report in the disclosure that they were going going to introduce it as evidence. They decided to introduce it as evidence in that moment. And the judge said no. It was, I'm guessing, what happened. All right, Kevin, are you going to continue listening to Breakdown and see where this trial goes? Definitely. Def- I'm really interested. Yeah. 
How about you, Laura? You seem like a pretty fired up about breakdown. Yeah, I'm fired up. I mean, it's definitely difficult subject matter when you're a parent to listen to something like this. But I really love Bill Rankin. He's like a total insider in the court system and really understands how it works. And he does it all with a little bit of humor inserted in, which definitely helps in uh, a subject that's as serious as this. And I've got to say, to Kevin's earlier point about Phoebe's fall and the Foley I believe, and I could be wrong about this, that the podcast production part of Phoebe's Fall is not being done by the newspaper, but by somebody who's helping them maybe with a production yeah, part of it. Yeah. Bill Rankin, I know, is also getting help with the production part of it. But to me, Breakdown very much, it's not perfect. Like some of these other like public radio produced podcasts that we've talked about. It is right for what it is. He has found his voice. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. scripts are like long reads in the newspaper. Look, there's there's not going to be a facts cover sheet episode in Breakdown, but it is going to be an awful lot of we're talking to other legal es- experts that are going to give you perspective and context for what you're hearing, and it's going to be a trial, and it's going to be guilty or not guilty, and you may agree with it or not, but you're going to see everything that happens. And it's good reporting. It's really, it's, it really good, good reporting. reporting. All right. It's not just reporting. It's analysis, too. It's very good. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, speaking of good reporting, uh, let's pivot now to the other true crime podcast we've been listening to for a couple of months now, In the Dark. Do you want me to do that again? True, true crime, crime podcast. podcast. Update. <laughs> All right, let's talk about In the Dark from APM Reports. The last time we discussed it, we'd gotten through about half the series, which is largely focused on the Jacob Wetterling case. The thesis of the podcast for the investigation was bungled. It was a failure of investigation, of course. Now we know who did it because the guy confessed. We've now gotten through eight episodes of the podcast. The second half of the series has been very different from the first half. It has really zoomed out. There have been episodes about the National Sex Offender Registry, systematic problems with investigations conducted by the Stearns County Sheriff's Office, and a clear look at the problems with sheriffs in general. There was an episode now that used data to tell a pretty clear story about whether or not crimes are actually solved by sheriffs and uh, in communities around the country. Toby, what do you think of this big zoom out that In the Dark has delivered? Did it deliver for you? It did. I, I think next to probably the OJ documentary, I think this has done the best job of kind of relating its story to larger societal issues, using it as an example that sort of supports this thesis that you get in the eighth episode, which is essentially that police departments across the country in large part or or in many places just aren't very good at solving crimes. Mm-hmm. Laura, you made a note about this last episode. You thought it was very satisfying. Why is that? Well, usually when you hear something, especially with a journalist who's trying to be sort of objective and just report the facts, you know, you're sort of maybe led to a certain conclusion, but they don't necessarily come out and directly tell you what that conclusion should be. And I found this episode at the end when she started talking, when Madeline started talking about the closure rates around the country. And this is what's going to happen to you if something happens, like, you know, God forbid something happens in this community and you need help because it's not going to get solved. And I felt like she really took a very strong editorial stand there. But to me, it was kind of like this whole podcast has really brought this issue to light. So we started with the story of Jacob Wetterling, but we zoomed out 
to see that his case was just like one piece in a bigger puzzle of some pretty inept police work out there. And it wasn't just his case. There was other cases. There's a police officer who was shot that was never solved. So it was troubling. I also was very satisfied when she put the sheriff on the spot. And I loved that she was absolutely so nice when she was really kind of holding his feet to the fire. Right. Um, she did it in the most you know, nice and polite way, but she didn't let him off the hook. And he was just like clueless, like, well, you know, we'd like to solve all the cases, but you know, that's, that's our goal. But you know, we're never going to um, be satisfied unless it's 100%. Luck. Yeah. I'm like, yes. oh, seriously? Luck is the factor that helps yeah. you solve crimes. That was amazing, right? Yeah. Only luck in that guy in the Amanda Knox case who thinks he's Sherlock Holmes. So I loved the ending because I felt like this really tied into a bigger issue in sort of the criminal justice system. But it also sort of left me feeling sort of troubled if this wasn't, you know, when she started naming off other communities and their closure <laughs> rates, I was like, God, this is awful. Did you look up yours like I did, Vine? I did not, no, because <laughs> if anything bad happens to me, I'm just going to solve it on my own. Spoiler alert, sucks to live in Honolulu. <laughs> it does. It does. And by the way, we're going to be talking about that in yeah. uh, Offshore, which is going to be really interesting. So, Kevin, there were some very, very big issues tackled mm -hmm. during this big zoom out. There was the National Sex Offender Registry, right. which is a timely and interesting topic. As Jacob Wetterling's own mother pointed out, would not have helped him because the guy who killed him wouldn't have been on the registry because of the inept police work. They talked about the issue about sheriffs in general, the lack of oversight, the fact that they're elected right. to do this law enforcement. And then she got very specific about the fact that this sheriff's department basically sucks at solving cases. <laughs> she talked about that horrible yeah. murder of the family, yeah. never asking the kid, is this your, your bro Batman Batmobile? Yeah. And the kid immediately, you know, 20 years or whatever Did later. Did you find my Batmobile? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know... I think, you know, we heard that this was supposed to be the final episode, but they're going to do one more. It definitely sounded like a final episode yeah. with all the mixing and the dramatic music at the end. What did you think of where they brought the story from where it started? I, I couldn't help thinking about, again, if they had not had the confession in the Wetterling case, what this podcast would have been. Because certainly if you're starting off trying to say, we have this huge case and it draws a line to, among other things, the ineptitude of the Stearns County Sheriff's Department by starting off with their big crowning achievement it changes that a little bit however you can make the argument that it actually makes it stronger by saying here's your great achievement it's built on feet of clay it sucked because of all these other things and they got into that in, in episodes two and three and looking back I wonder if it would you know if this were a book if that would be stronger at the end however zoom out Rebecca that's a perfect way of putting it is that because it did take a wide look at everything that happened because of the Wetterling case and the good and the bad. That interview with the sheriff, you know, I really kind of give props on both sides. She was great. She was the iron fist in the velvet glove. She sounded a little bit nervous to me, but I liked it that she did. Yes. She, she look, sounded like she knew she was asking tough questions, but she didn't stop. Yeah. Suppose you're a DA and you don't return somebody's phone calls for two years. Right. When you finally get them in, you can ask those questions. I would sound way you more get nervous a, than she You did. have a little more moxie, right? <laughs> right, right? And right. you're like, I'm going to hit you with this. Some of the questions, you know, you might say, really, it's not fair to this sheriff to say your clearance rate, 1978, was better than whatever. And the sheriff did say, well, look, we want to clear 100%. Because I tell you, Rebecca, if somehow you became sheriff, that's exactly what you would say. 
you want them to be 100%. I would never become sheriff. However, the fact that she did try to make him accountable and said, look, the sheriff isn't accountable to anybody and he doesn't know what his clearance rate is. That's some pretty good enterprise journalism there. And I'm really interested to see what the last episode will be. I agree with you. I mean, I know that one of the big complaints about serial among like undisclosed fans is that, you know, Sarah Koenig and serial isn't willing to go there to like, you know, get to the bigger issues to say this system is corrupt or whatever. Undis- because of her professional code of conduct? Well, yeah, but Undisclosed is on a lot of that work, but they're yeah. not journalists. Right. Here we have yeah. a journalist who has taken a year and gone all the way, which I think is mm-hmm. if you are a serial listener and you are an Undisclosed listener and maybe you are one of those like people who is just like, oh, you know, you would love this show because yeah. this show does deliver on what the truth is, but... They do have the huge advantage, as Kevin mentioned, of having that confession happen three weeks before the first episode dropped. Because otherwise, she everything she would be saying could be seen by doubters as, well, that's just what she's saying. Mm-hmm. But, you know, how do we really know that they've done a bad job solving this case? She makes her case with data. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, people talk about objective journalism. And, well, that's objective journalism. You get data and then... There's nothing non-objective about taking a look at terrible clearance rates and saying they're terrible. That, that's completely objective. Yeah. So, yeah, again, I, I mean, I think I think kudos to her. I, I, I think it's excellent. Last thought. It, it, Toby's been making this point for a couple of weeks, and it just struck me, you know, about the, the maturation of the True Crime Investigation podcast. There, ha- there has been good investigative journalism going on before 2014, right? Sure. And it's been in newspapers. It's been in t- in, on television or on public the radio, radio. Public radio, magazines, some of the stuff that has, you know, affected public policy and has uh, affected change. But I think today when you're a journalist and you have that great story and you think this could be something big, what you may think now is like a podcast platform brings it to a different level, a different kind of attention to an audience that is more engaged and more appreciative of the work. Right. So it's not like after Sarah Koenig, all of a sudden these great journalists sprouted from Hera's head like, you know, Greek mythology or something. You know, the whole thing about Phoebe's fall, like there's no way American audiences would have heard of that without podcasts. Mm-hmm. Or cares. Just in Australian newspapers. And I think if that had come out six months ago, I think the enthusiasm level probably would have been higher. But there's just been so many good ones that I think part of the issue with that one is that it doesn't have anything that separates itself from 10 other similar podcasts. And now we've just heard enough really good ones that you you do have to do something to to really stand out at this point. And I I think that's what In the Dark did. And if you're a a pad and pencil guy doing a podcast, you go to some guy and he says, all right, mate, I'm going to put some seagulls in here and make it sound. (laughs) No, you should not do the Australian accent. By the way, we have a listener who's going to help you with your Australian accent. I'm going to call on her. Okay, I've done Bill Rankin. I've done an Australian guy. Badly, badly. I've done a bad at offensive Italian guy. You've done and so I've done many Weirich offensive accents. In the past two, <laughs> two right. uh, podcasts. Right. We should come back around to this idea again about 
where these podcasts are going because it's not just candy anymore. It's really good stuff. It is because podcast audiences are different than other media audiences. They just are. This includes you, listener. I'm telling you, as somebody who has... talking about you right now. Kevin, you and I have been involved in every form of media. Yeah. This is the only kind of media we've ever been involved in when we get emails from people. Uh-huh. Daily, yeah, lots of emails who feel like they know us. It's wonderful. I mean, I actually, the community is still small enough. Like, I know Madeline Barron. Like, she and I send each other like Twitter instant messages. Like, I know her. This is an intimate medium still, and these stories are great. Laura, what are your final thoughts about? In the Dark, the story arc, and are you looking forward to next week? What do you think it's going to be about? I am, and I'm just going to follow up on what you were just saying about that sort of the the listeners feel like they know us, and I've become known as sort of like the crazy cat lady, and now I have Mark (laughs) from the BBC, who's like my new BFF, who sends me like videos and pictures of his new cats and stuff. (laughs) You know, I'm totally down with that. So I love it. I love all the interaction that we get. So regarding In the Dark. You love all of it? Not all of it. I will say I love the cat. (laughs) videos that I get. Yeah. Look, we had and we, we might as well address it. We had like a really shitty week on on Twitter as we predicted. Like Babe Ruth we called the it shot. Wasn't shitty. It was but fine. we have like f- awesome listeners. Even the ones that didn't agree with us came on and were cool about it. There were some trolls yeah. and they jumped to our defense, but everybody was so great. Our listeners rock. It, it sucked to mm-hmm. be us for a couple of days, No, but it sucked to be you. It sucked to be Cuz I I didn't I told you about the mute feature like 3 days afterwards. Mute is awesome. They, no, no, no. Yeah. You have a bad habit of responding. That's your look, problem. Look, if somebody says something misogynistic about my wife, I am stepping up and I'm going to say something. I don't care. I'm like, if you say shit about my wife, I'm going to say something to you. Aw, isn't that sweet? Wow. All right, Laura, I want to get back and to your final thoughts now. Yeah, okay. If you say so something bad my, about my... Laura, I'm going to say something too. <laughs> That's good. And you know what? I'm going to the gym now so I can pump it up, people. Okay? <laughs> Toby can defend himself, out. but I will say... <laughs> Toby needs to defend himself against us. Toby does fine. What are you going to say, Laura? So, you know, my thoughts are, you know, I'm going to keep listening because I feel like this was such a strong episode. We knew that this was originally, we knew up front at the end, she reminded us both times, this was going to be the last episode. This was such a strong episode that it leads me to believe that if she's going to do one additional episode, it's got to be some pretty strong material to Mm. top what she gave us this week. So Mm. I am eagerly awaiting what she's going to produce. All right. I feel the same way. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of the show, a little something I like to call the Crime Crime of of the the Week. week. Staying with our Down Under theme with which we began this podcast, Matt Burke of Sydney, Australia is gobsmacked. Gobsmacked, (laughs) I tell you. After being slapped with a hefty fine and labeled a, quote, serious offender for parking across his own driveway. Burke lives across from Ashbury Public School and told the Canterbury Bankstown Express, which, by the way, is the best newspaper name ever, (laughs) that he parked his car across the driveway to stop others doing the same after getting blocked in at busy school pickup and drop off times. It seems parents have been parking their cars across his driveway and keeping him from being able to leave to go pick up his own son from preschool. So what was the punishment for parking across his own driveway? Burke got a $180 fine. Jeez. That, by the way, is $137.43 in U.S. dollars and is being called a serious offender just as if he didn't obey traffic signs in a school zone. When he complained, he was told leniency would be, quote, inappropriate for so <laughs> serious an offense. No justice for you. Mr. Burke's only remaining appeal option is in court 
but it appears the law is not on his side. Under New South Wales road rules, a driver must not stop across a driveway for more than two minutes, even if that driveway is his own. Isn't this the same country that wanted to kill Johnny Depp's dogs? I don't know. (laughs) Here is my question for you, panel. Toby, have you ever considered committing a crime while navigating the Kafka-esque nightmare that seems to define school (laughs) drop-offs everywhere one might live? Have you considered committing a crime in that situation? No. (laughs) All right. So the question I have about this, this whole Australian case is if people are really only allowed to park in front of his driveway for two minutes, is he that impatient that that two minutes, like he can't wait for that? No. Or are they they not ticketing these people who are parking in front of his driveway? Well, he got the fine that day because he was caught, but apparently people do this all the time, just like leave their cars across the bottom of his driveway, and he can't get Uh out to pick up his own kid from school. And the day that he did it, in order to keep others from doing the same... He happened to get this hefty ticket and told the cop, this is my house. And that apparently wasn't good enough. The only thing is that I've sometimes wanted to kill people who uh, like on a 70 degree day, like have their windows up and are just idling. (laughs) (laughs) That's very, very ecologically conscious of you, Toby. I'm very impressed. I would like them to roll down their windows and turn off their cars. Laura, have you ever considered committing a crime while navigating the Kafka-esque nightmare that is school drop-off? I have not because my son usually rides the bus. Now sometimes I have to drive him because he's doing saxophone. And and our drop-off, I don't want to jinx it, isn't too bad. But I will say where I do want to commit a crime is the grocery store. The people that stop their cart right in the middle of the aisle so you can't get by. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, there has been a number of times recently where I'm going to be like, get your fucking cart out of the way. And I'm swearing again because it enrages me. There is etiquette in the grocery store. What the fuck? (laughs) I do that all the time. I will cut you in the cereal aisle. You know, we're here here in Laura's diet talking right now. Uh, (laughs) She's starving. Have a granola bar. She is hangry AF. You need need a Snickers like in that TV commercial. You and I are so fat, but we are not that angry about the grocery store. (laughs) That's because we've eaten. (laughs) Well, I made some crazy healthy granola bars this week. They're like, they had quinoa in them for crying out loud. Oh, Kevin, have you ever considered committing a crime while navigating the Kafka-esque nightmare that is school drop-off? No, I mean, I just kind of go with it. You know, like like the lower elementary school, you're talking about first, second graders. I just, you know, I stay right in a line. I don't do anything fancy because... You don't want to hit any child, but I mean, you know, they're young and they, they may not know. Now that now that we've got like kids going to junior high school and high school, it's kind of like zigzagging. I was like, yeah, you guys can go there. But I'm going around the pylon and I'm get out now here. You know, I'm on the sidewalk. The thing that I don't know about this guy who like was getting blocked into his own driveway is like you should do what they do in South Boston when the snow plows come and they, you got to shovel out a parking space for yourself. It's like, hey, you know what I did? This is I put... I I, uh, I put a, a lawn chair, a folding lawn chair out in front of it. Just put a couple of lawn chairs out there. Yeah, no, 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 no bother you if you put a lawn chair out. It's wicked awesome. Now, that's a good impression. That's yeah. not so bad. Just put a lawn chair out. No one will mess with your Subaru. <laughs> well, the only crime I ever considered committing is when I read the stickers on the cars in front of mine while waiting in that line. All those athletic stickers <laughs> about all 13.1, the... 13.1, 20, 26.2. I have one of those. It's 0.0. The driver of this car ran Mount Washington. Well, you know what? The driver of this car just ate 
4.0 donuts. Yeah. That's what I have to say about that. I want to get one that says, the driver of this car just drove past Mount Washington. <laughs> we should probably end it on that note. Toby Ball, if our listeners want to tweet with you, follow you on Twitter, how can they find you there? At Toby Ball NH. And Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to find you on Twitter, perhaps send you some cat videos or photos, how can they find you there? It's at Laura Bricker. Kevin Flynn, what about you? Are you on the Twitter? Is it safe? It's safe. Is it safe? It's safe. I mean, like Dustin Hoffman, Marathon Man, is it safe? I get the reference, another bad impression. I'm letting it go. It's safe. I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to tweet with me or find me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. You can reach us by email with your questions and voice memos at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Want to get our newsletter or support the show by buying stuff on Amazon using that link? You can get all that done at our website, crimewriterson.com. If you listen on iTunes, please consider rating and especially reviewing this show. It really helps us out. And while you're browsing for podcasts, check out our other show. These are their stories, the Law & Order podcast. You can also check out the other podcasts in the Partners in Crime Media family, Deathcast and The Disappearance podcast. Our very handsome line producer is Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. in an underpowered, overheated closet in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. So, Toby, what do you think is the mission of Breakdown? Do you think it's doing a good job fulfilling that mission? Are you going to continue to listen? I haven't the foggiest fucking idea because I've only listened to about five minutes. <laughs> All right. That's, well, forget it. We're going to cut that. Our discussions are going to go so much faster. All right. All right. Well, I think well, let's, let's just pivot then. New from Partners in Crime Media, The Disappearance Podcast, the story of a man who receives a mysterious box from a classmate who disappeared 20 years ago. Follow John as he seeks the clues to why he received the box and what happened to Alistair Glamis. How do phonograph records and Edgar Allan Poe figure into Alistair's fate? If you like moody mystery podcasts like The Black Tapes or The Message, you'll want to check out The Disappearance. Find it on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 